Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is the 104th episode of Between the Covers, the fourth of the new year, a conversation with Therese Marie Myatt about her remarkable memoir, Heartberries. There is now a rapidly growing archive of bonus material for supporters on the Patreon page. The audio of Therese Myatt reading her essay, Native Women Brilliance, is being added today, joining essays by Lainey Zumas, poems by Yun Song Kim, and flash fiction and nonfiction from Carmen Maria Machado. You can check this all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And while you're there, consider becoming a patron. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer and editor Therese Marie Myatt. Myatt is a graduate of the Institute of American Indian Arts MFA program. She is the Tecumseh Postdoctoral Fellow at Purdue University, the Saturday editor at The Rumpus, and a columnist for Indian Country Today, where her work has been noted and recognized by the Native American Journalists Association. Myatt's work has also appeared in the Los Angeles Times, The Offing, Carve Magazine, and Yellow Medicine Review, among others, and garnered fellowships from the Vermont Studio Center to the Elk Writers Workshop. Therese Marie Myatt is here today to talk about one of the most anticipated books of 2018, her memoir, Heartberries, just out from Counterpoint Press. Lydia Yuknovich says of Heartberries, How does a woman raised on a reservation in Canada forge a life story in the face of a culture hell-bent on keeping her quiet and calm. Therese radically reinvents language in order to surface what has been murdered by American culture. The body of a woman, the voice of a warrior, the stories of ancestral spirit, jetting up and through the present tense. This is a writer for our times who simultaneously blows up time. Roxane Gay adds, Maya writes of motherhood, loss, Absence, want, suffering, love, mental illness, betrayal, and survival. She does this without blinking, but to say she is fearless would be to miss the point. These essays are too intimate, too absorbing, too beautifully written, but never ever too much. 
What Myatt has accomplished in this exquisite book is brilliance, both raw and refined, testament. And finally, Sherman Alexie adds, Therese Marie Myatt is smart and smart ass. She is wounded and seeking to wound. She is forgiving and vengeful. She is mentally ill and smarter than all of us. She is cynical and deeply, deeply romantic. She is the metaphorical love child of Emily Dickinson and Crazy Horse. She is the biological child of a broken healer and a lonely artist. Heartberries is disturbing and hilarious. An epic take, an Iliad for the indigenous, the story of one First Nation woman and her geographic, emotional, and theological search for meaning in a colonial world. Welcome to Between the Covers, Therese Marie Myatt. Thank you. Thank you for all that. <laughs> uh, well, before we talk about Heartberries, I'd like to talk about a great article that you wrote for Indian Country Today. Sure. Called Decolonizing My Story as an Indigenous Woman. You raised some really interesting questions for yourself that made me curious about how these questions inform your choices in, in developing your memoir. Um, in the article, you talk about how it's difficult not to put racism and all the ways the world has oppressed indigenous people at the center of one's own story. And you say, to put tragedy at the locus, to give the culprits a talking part in my play would be relenting, would be giving them too much. And you, and you pose this question to yourself, how can I remove myself from the history of trauma rather than giving the traumatizers center stage and central voice in my story? So obviously this question is, is a complicated one. It doesn't have one easy answer or one answer at all, but can you talk about how grappling with this question around narrative shapes some of the choices you made in, in creating the memoir, Heartberries? The way to go in for me was to put myself at the apex, right? That like this was my narrative first and foremost, and that I was not trying to appeal to the better natures of people who have subjugated indigenous communities, right? And um, I did not want to rhetorically position myself as um, undone by oppression and subject to it. I wanted to wield some power back into my own narrative and kind of work against the stereotypes, but also invite them in, you know, invite the labels in which um, I felt burdened by and really interrogate what it means to come from where I am and to exist um, in such disparity, you know. And did you see yourself replicating some of them um, unconsciously and then having to sort of grapple with your own prose as you did editing or was there or 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 what were some of the ways in, in which process um, showed some of this? I found myself trying to explain, justify, or rationalize um, the things I failed at personally, which was um, like violence against people, even if it was um, like the utterance of like of violent things to people I loved, you know, or the violence against myself and trying to justify it away with while I am a product of um, abuse and um, intergenerational trauma and resisting that com compulsion to examine my life through that lens. Instead, I examined it through an artistic lens of how do I render this um, my own and how do I also become accountable in a way that is 
um, almost selfless because you're talking about violence and being self-effacing because you want other people to go through that journey with you and understand that it's okay to be broken and to have broken people and to repair yourself through that, you know? Mm. Well, I think a related question to this question of how not to center the victimizer in one's own story mm-hmm. is this question of avoiding cliche and stereotype, which yeah. you, you mentioned, and pushing it back against the world, at, what the world at large is expecting of an indigenous story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you write about this explicitly in Heartberries, and you talk about it in your conversation with Joan Kane, mm-hmm. um, and also in your article, I've Justified Bad Native Art Long Enough. Oh, yeah, that's uh, one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, it's really yeah. good. Um, and I encourage people to go to Indian country today and read some of these articles because they're amazing Um, about this question of writing against an uh, essentializing and reductive notion of what an indigenous person or what indigenous art should be Um, when talking with Joan Kane about your work in relationship to native memoirs that came before and you mentioned Joy Harjo, Leslie Mm -hmm. Marmosilko and and Scott Mamaday among others you say that when there is literary criticism about them at all that you often feel it is mishandled. And your memoir opens with the line, my story was maltreated. And I wondered if there was a relationship between this opening, between this mishandling of, of the stories or, or memoirs of, of the natives mm-hmm. who've written before you and this opening line of my story has been maltreated. I mean, there are so many, um, it's doing so much work in that, brief line, um, because it's speaking to, from the very beginning, when I first told my mother that I had been abused, um, she did not, it wasn't that she didn't believe me, it's just that she didn't have the tools to understand um, what's the best way to cope or discuss that with a a 13-year-old or a 16-year-old, because I told her numerous times that I thought something had happened, and did this happen, and she just really had no capacity to understand. So, you know, from there, my story was maltreated and um, talking to teachers and social workers about what was going on in my home. um, People either, you know, were pitied me or thought that, um, that I was undeserving of the type of protection and respect that I think a non-Native person or child would have had had they come forth with what was going on um, kind of in their home. And um, and then in my dating life, you know, with men, um, so often on a date, men would ask, like, what's your story? And they want a soundbite. And when you're when you're me, you have a novel, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, and then we look at on an institutional level, um, our casework is mishandled, the reports don't get filed, and detectives don't call us when we um, make charges against people, and justice is, is rarely served um, when there are transgressions against us, and then there is the art, which it seems like it's so exhausting just to get through all of that. And then I'm finally at this position where I can discuss um, how we are essentialized as artists. And our stories are often mishandled. Often um, people want to look at our work and 
um, compartmentalize it as native literature, like this is quintessential native text, and then they treat it like historical text Hmm. of like, oh, this is great insight into your culture and your ways of life, and no, I am not representative. Writers are so weird where there's no way you're representative of our culture, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, maybe this is a nice time to have you read a little bit. Sure. Um, if you don't mind reading the first chapter in yeah, the sure. Indian Condition, I, I, All right. I would love that. Indian Condition. My story was maltreated. The words were too wrong and ugly to speak. I tried to tell someone my story, but he thought it was a hustle. He marked it as solicitation. The man took me shopping with his pity. I was silenced by charity, like so many Indians. I kept my hand out. My story became the hustle. Women asked me what my endgame was. I hadn't thought about it. I considered marrying one of the men and sitting with my winnings, but I was too smart to sit. I took their money and I went to school. I was hungry and took more. When I gained the faculty to speak my story, I realized I had given men too much. The thing about women from the river is that our currents are endless. We sometimes outrun ourselves. I stopped answering men's questions or their calls. Women asked me for my story. My grandmother told me about Jesus. We knelt to pray. She told me to close my eyes. It was the only thing she asked me to do properly. She had conviction, but she also taught me to be mindless. We started recipes and lost track. We forgot ingredients. Our cakes never rose. We started an applehead doll. The shrunken, carved head sat on a bookshelf years after she left. When she died, nobody noticed me. Indian girls can be forgotten so well, they forget themselves. My mother brought healers to our home, and I thought she was trying to exercise me, a little ghost. Psychics came. Our house was still ruptured. I started to craft ideas. I wrapped myself in a Pendleton blanket and picked blueberries. I pretended I was ancient. A healer looked at me. He was tall and his jeans were dirty. He knelt down. I thought I was in trouble, so I told him that I had been good. He said, you don't need to be nice. My mother said that was when I became trouble. That's when my nightmares came. A spinning wheel, a white porcelain tooth, a snarling mouth, and lightning haunted me. My mother told me they were visions. Turn your shirt backwards to confuse the ghost, she said, and sent me to bed. My mother insisted that I embrace my power. On my first day of school, I bound myself a small book. My teacher complimented my vocabulary, and my mother told me school was a choice. She fed me traditional food. I went to bed early every night, but I never slept well. I fell ill with tuberculosis. My mother brought back the healers. I told them my grandmother was speaking to me. Zohar, a white mystic, a tarot reader, told me she spoke to spirits too. Your grandmother says she misses you. We could never make a cake, I said. 
She was just telling me that. What ingredients did you usually forget? Zohar asked. I knew this was a test, but a strange one, because she didn't speak to my grandmother either. I remember my mother was watching, holding her breath. Eggs, I said. My spiritual fraud distanced my grandmother's spirit from me. It became harder to stomach myself and harder to eat. Does that happen to you? I said. What? Zohar asked. Did you ever want to stop eating? No, she said. Zohar asked my mother if she could sleep next to my bed on the floor. She listened to me all night, storytelling, what potential there was in being awful. My mindlessness became a gift. I didn't feel compelled to tell any moral tales or ancient ones. I learned how story was always meant to be for Indian women, immediate and necessary and fearless, like all good lies. My story was maltreated. I was a teenager when I got married. I wanted a safe home. Despair isn't a conduit for love. We ruined each other, and then my mother died. I had to leave the reservation. I had to get my GD. I left my home because welfare made me choose between necessities. I used a check and some cash I saved for a ticket away and knew I would arrive with a deficit. That's when I started to illustrate my story and exactly when it became a means of survival. The ugly truth is that I lost my son Isidore in court, the Hague Convention. The ugly of that truth is that I gave birth to my second son as I was losing my first. My court date and my delivery aligned. In the hospital, they told me that my first son would go with his father. What about this boy, I said, with Isaiah in my arms? They don't see him interested yet, my lawyer said. I brought Isaiah home from the hospital and then packed Isidore's bag. My ex-husband Vito took him along with police escorts. Before they left, I asked Vito if he wanted to hold his new baby. I don't know why I offered, but he didn't kiss our baby or tell him goodbye. He didn't say he was sorry or that it was unfortunate. Who wants one boy and not another? It's too ugly to speak. It's too ugly to speak this story. It sounds like a beggar. How could misfortune follow me so well, and why did I choose it every time? I learned how to make a honey reduction of the ugly sentences. Still, my voice cracks. I packed my baby and left my reservation. I came from the mountains to an infinite and flat brown to bury my grief. I left because I was hungry. In my first writing classes, my professor told me that the human condition was misery. I am a river widened by misery, and the potency of my language is more than human. It's an Indian condition to be proud of survival, but reluctant to call it resilience. Resilience seems ascribed to human conditioning in white people. The Indian condition is my grandmother. She was a nursery teacher. There are stories that she brought children to our kitchen, gave them laxatives, and then put newspaper on the ground. She squatted before them and made faces to illustrate how hard they should push. 
She dewormed children this way, and she learned that in residential school, where parasites and nuns and priests contaminated generations of our people, Indians froze trying to run away, and many starved. Nuns and priests ran out of places to put bones, so they built us into the walls of new boarding schools. I can see grandmother's face in front of those children. Her hands felt like rose petals, and her eyes were soft and round like buttons. She liked carnations and canned milk. She had a big heart for us kids. She transcended resilience and actualized what Indians weren't taught to know. We are unmovable. Time seems measured by grief and anticipatory grief, but I don't even think she measured time. We've been listening today to Therese Marie Myatt read from her memoir, Heartberries from Counterpoint. Another avenue of interrogation you take in, in decolonizing my story is to question the notion that the indigenous generations before you were more pure and more whole, and then wondering about this idea of purity, and by extension, your need to then, as the quote-unquote impure generation, to reclaim part of yourself, if that whole idea was imported, uh, a Christian idea that was imported. Mm -hmm. Um, It feels like you're grappling with this in this opening chapter that you just read, Mm -hmm. in the sense that you're troubling this question around ancient uh, you're both pretending to be ancient and yet are being spoken to by a, a healer mm-hmm. who your mom who your mom takes his advice as in a, in a serious way yeah uh, as a as a life turning point yeah um, that you don't have to be nice and then you be, become trouble so <laughs> yeah. can can you talk a little bit about this question for yourself for your generation and for you as an individual um, of pushing back against the tendency to portray past generations of indigenous people as more whole and pure, and how you found yourself working that out as you um, portray your own past generations in, in, in the book. Whenever our ancestors um, are portrayed or illustrated or um, examined by our own culture and outside, they're seen in this regal way or a pitiful way, and they're basically relics of something holy and different and more stoic and interesting than the Indians now who are going to Starbucks and, like, you know, I don't know. We're so much less than our... Um, like those relics that we're always compared to of like, Oh, these people, they're so far removed from their origin and nobody ever looks at white people and thinks, Oh, you, you're so far removed from your like butter churning days or something, you know, like we don't, yeah. We don't say like, you must be so lost without your sacred ways of butter churning. Like we don't, And, you know, and that's how I feel about hunting and fishing. Like, my people are a fishing community. There's really a lot of honor in providing for your family, but it is not um, what people make it out to be that we are less autonomous because we buy canned fish, you know? It's really just not interesting to me to even dissect that. Um, But, But yeah. Do you find pressure within the community or recognize... um, reflexive or habitual patterns that 
you've been brought up in that you find yourself falling into narratives that you have to then trouble? It was because that scene where um, the the man who gave me um, permission to to stop being nice and placating and the good child. Um, his name was Isidore Tom, and he's um, who my son is named after. And he mm-hmm. was a profound um, member of our um, Native community. So, like, you know, the reality, like, his power and his medicine was very real. And how I would portray him, I would have to be so careful not to make him mystical because it would do such a disservice to the real healing he did. So, like, there is always that push and pull. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, there is this doubleness in this chapter that you read in the book as a whole between the ancient and the modern in the sense, you know, you're told you're told by this healer that you don't need to be nice. And that's also when your visions come. Mm -hmm. But what your mother calls visions are part part of what becomes um, one of the threads in Heartberries is your struggle with mental illness, with mm-hmm. bipolar disorder, with post-traumatic stress syndrome, and with an eating disorder. And this hunger that's both sort of an existential and spiritual hunger is also a physical or maybe path- mm-hmm. pathological one in a sense, too. Um, I was hoping you could speak about that tension, the the spinning disc, the spinning disc that you see, and about the path to finding your own language for what that is when mm-hmm. you're being provided two contradictory languages in a sense. You're, yeah. you're being provided from your mother, these are visions, and you're yeah. being provided by the medical community, this is, uh, you, you know, this is your psychiatric diagnosis. Yeah. yeah. So, so t- <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. In, in my mother's time, even like in the 80s, um, if I was a grown woman, there would have been so much access in my community to healing that address the very real concerns of my illness, but also the sacredness of it. So like, you know, I would have been regarded as um, a somebody with a potential to heal based on those visions, you know, somebody with a potential to liberate things and become um, a storyteller. You know, I would have been honored in my community during that time if I was a woman during when my mother was raising me. But now that I'm a woman away from my community, um, it's a lot of code work when I'm in a white institution about how to do the framework of illustrating my spiritual beliefs without um, doing a disservice to, to, like, I don't want them to think it's psychosis, that I have real visions. And I also don't want to... When I'm writing about it, I don't want to appear like a mystic. I don't want people to assume that um, because for me visions are very real, that when I talk about them, I am asking people to imagine that I am this holy and sacred thing. I'm, you know, I think people, people kind of, I don't know. I guess I also don't care too much, you know. Yeah. Artistically, I, I just wanted to express the truth, and the truth exists in that duplicity of self, of like, is spirituality real? And is if it is tangible, how do you illustrate it? And the only way I could do that was in the chapter Thunder Being Honey Bear. Um, the first line is, I could avoid the mysticism, um, 
of my culture, but I could not avoid all the signals and signs that were presenting themselves to me in my life, mm-hmm. you know? That's well put. Yeah. 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 Well, well uh, at one point I had a guest, Lacey Johnson, and she wrote a memoir that centered around sexual abuse and violence of an ex-boyfriend who abducted her. Um, and we talked about how important it was for her to write against what she said called writing against chronology, to not tell the story in a linear fashion. Mm-hmm. And I wondered about this in regards to Heartberries, where one aspect of this book is your relationship to this reemerging memory that your father had been sexually abusive. And you make a lot of really interesting choices as a writer on a craft level that I, that I really admired as a reader. Uh, for one, the lack of linear time and the avoidance of giving us a detailed image of the memory, they both made me feel like I was following not a timeline, but instead sort of a, a mental process or a mm-hmm. pathway of, of a certain mental mm-hmm. process. And that being denied the image as a reader felt similar to what I imagine it would have been like to push away the image mm-hmm. as the person having the image. But but do you see these choices the same way? I'm wondering if they're linked to an aesthetic philosophy or an approach in, in how you wanted to approach abuse in the book? I think it was um, quite literally just a practice in language. So everything I can possibly say about what my father did to me, I say it. And, and I could not um, say any more, you know? Mm. And it was, it's still a practice in language where kind of every day... I am meeting people who really need to tell me that um, something happened to them when they were a child or that they are trying to reconcile with the fact that, um, you know, they want to help someone who's dealing with the same thing, but they're not sure how, but to just watch how horrific it is to watch someone deal with their past and their history, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So it really was just a practice in language where, like, Aesthetically, I did not want to be elusive, but I also knew how the truth works for me. It's more um, the truth is approximate. It is not exact. So for me to recall the day, I think I probably could if I had to. Um, But I also wouldn't want to because I feel like if I could recall the exact date and the um, exact time and where my family was and why nobody noticed. I feel like, God, I would have loved to have taken that information to court when I was 10. So I'm like resisting the urge to even remember mm. because of the loss that would present itself the moment I did. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I read that this book started as a fiction project mm-hmm. and that it was through writing fiction that some of these memories were retrieved for you. And I wondered if, if it was, if you felt like it was starting with fiction that sort of created the space for those memories to emerge. And if you could also then speak to how you took a fictionalized version of your life and, and went about, um, bringing it around again to memoir. Yeah, I had started writing short stories, and I was going to either do a collection or try to organize these connected short stories into a book, and it was always with a protagonist who had more bravado than I did and more confidence and was really reckless, was compelling herself to follow every symptom of of bipolar and PTSD. And it was not clear... um, 
why. So at the end of every story, I remember my mentor at the time, um, Ismet Presik, he mm. wrote Shards. Um, he writes about PTSD, too. It's an amazing book. Um, he kept saying, why do you always have these murky, dark endings where nothing's happening? And I was like, I don't know why. <laughs> and um, and then I was in a Starbucks um, having a coffee, and I just, I was just standing there, and I was so struck with, like, this weird... Um, weird feeling that overtook my whole body. It was visceral. I felt disgusted with myself, and I could not see. I was so dizzy. And um, and I, the first thing I said, I was on the phone, and I said, like, something has, is happening to me. I need you to come. And I was, I was saying that to Casey, um, who at the time was my husband. Um, yeah, so I basically... I had to start writing the truth that, like, something has happened to me and I need to explicitly say that I was molested and that it's not, that's not the reason why I am the way that I am, but honoring that I can speak it now is, it was transformative. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking about post-traumatic stress disorder, I was listening to an interview with Sherman Alexie about his memoir Mm -hmm. where he said the incidence of PTSD for children on reservations is this is at the same rate as that for people coming back from combat zones from um, Mm -hmm. veterans from war and he also talked about the erasure of and the misogyny specifically toward indigenous women Mm -hmm. the high incidence of sexual violence abduction and murder that is both never considered newsworthy and often not even considered worthy of action by by authorities and you've written this about this too um citing that first nation first nations women in canada are four times more likely to go missing or be murdered than any other group of women indigenous women only being four percent of the female population but representing 16 percent of murder victims and 11 percent of missing person cases and um, it's interesting to hear those statistics because we don't hear about those statistics in the United States either. Mm-hmm. Like I just saw Elizabeth Woody today um, posting about Washington State, and mm-hmm. I think it's 5% of missing persons in Washington State are uh, indigenous women, and it's way more than the, the proportion of the population. Um, can you speak a little bit about... Um, the the articles that you've written, I, I think of it, it takes a community to exploit a Native woman and also um, if I'm murdered or go missing, don't hang a red dress for me. Um, yeah. Um, I think a lot of the book is like laying down um, a story that I felt like it almost felt, at some points it felt like the legacy I would leave behind if I went missing. You know, um, because it's such a real problem in my community that young people, kids, you know, are are not protected in my community. And it's from the chief and council to the rural town next door um, to the men um, that come into rural areas and work. for certain companies and end up exploiting Native women, and it's the hotels that permit um, sex work and do not encourage um, women's safety 
or men's safety. Um, so it really it, it really does take a a lot of people to be complicit for a Native woman to go missing. And there are so many questions and indictments I'd like to make. And um, I don't know. I mean, I it's really difficult to talk about because I, I immediately think of um, women's names like Cindy Gladu and Joey English. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about all these women um, who have died who did not need to die that way and I'm thinking about their families now today you know and um in a lot of ways my book is trying to um trying to portray a native woman's voice and encouraging other native women to and native men too to really talk about what sexual violence and what violence against our communities what that really looks like and that we are singular people with stories and we're interesting and we're worth caring about and I'm not trying to compel anyone to care about me but like I'd like if I go missing for this to be um my letter you know yeah. what I leave behind you know yeah. yeah and I don't want a symbolic gesture I got into so much trouble for the red dress article um because it's a really it's an excellent movement to use red red scarves, red dresses as a symbol to engage people in noticing that murdered and missing women is an, is an issue that we should care about and think about. But I don't want a symbolic gesture. I want justice and I want um, retribution, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Therese Marie Myatt about her memoir, Heartberries. So another guest that I had on the program, Morgan Parker, the poet, she she talks openly about her struggles with depression in her art the way that you do, and also how it's difficult for her as an African-American woman uh, to find uh, psychological help, um, mm -hmm. for partly for cultural reasons, because no one in her family would was seeking therapy before her, but also because of how few therapists there were that were African American. Um, you take this this question a step further when you discuss how self help isn't enough for Native women. There's a scene in Heartberries that I think of, and you you've committed yourself to a behavioral health inpatient facility. And you were in a group therapy session where the counselor explained self-esteem and its function. And you write, my mother wasn't big on esteem for herself, let alone trying to foster that in me. I think self-esteem is a white invention to further separate one person from another. It asks people to assess their values and Im implies people have worth. It seems like identity capitalism. And similarly, in one of your essays, you say, my counselor said, you need to work on your self-esteem. And I couldn't. I esteemed myself, sure, but it wasn't my measure of success or part of my, li my life in a daily way. It was something to resist. So hoping maybe you could unpack that a little more for us, um, the limitations of self-help in your mind and, yeah. and how it relates to w what you might consider a Western white construction of, of identity. Yeah, there is always that language of value that we should value ourselves and demand that the world treats us according to that value. Um, and I think for me, 
you know, I'm not okay unless my brother's okay and unless um, my community's okay. So the self feels collective and plural and really bound to my community. So when I'm thinking of the self and valuing myself, you know, I taking the time to write the book was an exercise in self-esteem and building self-awareness. Um, but it also involved the collective because I'm always calling to... Um, my ancestors. I'm always thinking about my community and the implications of what I'm saying. Um, so the self really is a collective thing for me. And I mean, group therapy, um, group therapy was really interesting. Like, because I've done it so many times because I always, with kind of new changes in my life, sometimes I have to reassess my meds and things like that. I recently did group therapy where my counselor, Tawny, she'd love for me to say her name. Um, she realized that, like, I could not, I did not like the semantic, like, I did not the I, like the idea of self-esteem, you know, but I could deal with um, self-love, right? Like, so she had me kind of um, stand up and then she made everyone compliment me. And this was so recent because I did a 15-day outpatient program, partial hospitalization program recently. And um, and that made me care about myself in a way I never had before. So I feel like in a lot of ways the trajectory, the book discussing the self and being skeptical of the language um, invited the idea that I'm ready for something bigger and brighter, which mm. is like... I don't know, self-love or something like that, but I do not use the word value or yeah. like or worth, you know, because I just I can't compel myself to use those words because it feels like I'm trying to quantify what I want out of people. And I, I want their love and compassion on their own terms and my own, you know. Well, and also that idea that it, that the self is plural. Yeah. If if the self isn't plural, then it's a way not to look at his, his history or historical mm -hmm. trauma. It becomes just about you and yeah. sort of artificially abstracted from yeah. from the rest. Well, plus when we go into a doctor's office and we're like, and they're saying like, why are you depressed? Like, do you know, kind of, did something happen recently? And to be honest, you can, sometimes I don't, want to um, exist based on what I'm reading and what's happening to indigenous bodies. And so, and talking to a doctor about that, they might think it's not real, that pain of oppression, right? The pain of seeing a community um, trying to just live, you know, trying to have ba a basic quality of life. And the fact that seeing that struggle and knowing that it has not changed since I was a child and I don't know that it ever will like it it really damages your psyche you know yeah, yeah. well something that we haven't talked about yet which is at at the center of the heart of Heartberries, narratively speaking is is the love story mm -hmm. um which focuses on a relationship you have with an ex-teacher who's mm -hmm. white. And uh, the these chapters of the book have a really different feel because yeah. they're written directly to him. Yeah. And I'm hoping before we talk about the relationship and, and its role in Heartberries, maybe you could just read a little bit so people can hear how this sounds differently. Yeah, sure. Casey, 
I want to be polite and present myself as decent. I know the math of regret and nostalgia. The potency of your touch times the distance between that touch and today determines the intensity of my desperation. I regret leaving you, and I'm disappointed you let me go. I don't remember what I did. I know that I cried next to you, and I was wearing lingerie. You were angry with me for wanting to die. More than that, you were upset that I was weak-minded. I was dramatic and unhinged. I couldn't placate. I know that's what I should have done. I remember that I was wearing black lace and new stockings. I wasn't stable, but men usually don't care about that. I didn't perform. I found myself uncovered and vulnerable in fabric so thin I thought of everything I've belted against my flesh and unclass again and again. You used me. I know you think animals are sentient. You treat your dog well. I needed to talk to you. The way we operate asks a lot from me before I can ask something of you. This letter can spiral out of control like me, and maybe you won't read it because I might fail to send it, or you might decide your life without me is worth maintaining. You have white sensibilities, and who can fault you for being practical? I'd like this letter to be ashamed and wild like me, and I'd like to know you read it and wanted me more. I told the staff this is my journal. I'm going to die an Indian death. I want to lay my neck on the cool steel alloy of the train tracks back home. I want the death of a res dog. Mutts can't keep away from the tracks. I'm writing you from a behavioral health service building. I agreed to commit myself under the condition they would let me write. You should have thought before you made a crazy Indian woman your lover. Feel culpable in my insanity because you are partly to blame. I am not good, but you knew that. Why think less of me in here? You're so economic with your language and your time. I understand your frustration with me. You want to spare yourself any tax or energy, and I am acutely aware of my impulsivity. It might be all the same to you. Do you still love me? I want you. Don't think less of me for being crazy. Don't think that I am the only one culpable in my craziness. I was walking through the house in the dark. I had covered the windows and mirrors. I was just unseeing things, dragging my feet along the wood panels until I found myself in the kitchen. I could not forget the familiarity of the kitchen or its drawers and instruments. Keep in mind you were once desperate for me. I need help, and I cannot stop thinking that every transgression has brought me closer to a light, a striking beacon that tells me death is absolution. I have never chosen light. If transgressions were all bad, people wouldn't do them. Do you consider me a transgression? I'm tired of the constant stories and the truth I don't acknowledge. They're not medicine anymore. I'm not medicine anymore. The words are flaccid, and the things I used to find sacred are torment. I'm stepping into my own undertow. 
My own valley is closing in on me. I curl into walls, ashamed of my cowardice. I am sick or possessed. The spirits used to possess people. We called it Indian sick, and it was the first illness to be accounted for. It begins with want, with taking, and ends with a silence that hurts and makes us beg. There were stories about the cures and causes. Women tried to eat soap berries or nothing and talked about how we all had it coming. When the first children died, it was too late to stop talking. When the beings took the women, they bound them in blood. They were buried in wombs of sad memory. The only thing, the right thing, the thing that brought about our immunity, was the knowledge that something instinctual would carry us back. The awareness that our ancestors were watching was vital. I don't feel the eyes of my grandmother anymore. What I feel struck with is something smaller in a less impressive world. I woke up today confused inside of something feminine and ancestral in its misery. I woke up as the bones of my ancestors locked in government storage. My illness has carried me into white buildings, into the doctor's office, and the therapist with nothing to say other than I need my grandmother's eyes on me, smiling at my misguided heart. Imagine their faces when I say that. I've been listening to Therese Marie Myatt read from Heartberries from Counterpoint Press. In these sections, when you're writing the letters to Casey, um, you come across in a, in a variety of ways, including mm-hmm. really smart, strong, and funny, but also these seem to be the areas where you're willing to really be vulnerable or to show yourself in a really unflattering light mm-hmm. or to um, show the ways you failed as a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and Joan Kane asks you about this in, in, your, in your question and answer, what it means to work with the risks of self-disclosure. And I was hoping you could speak to that here, not only the risks, but maybe even the difficulties and, and craft questions around um, creating a voice that you specifically want in terms of how you, you dramatize uh, these these moments. Casey and I, I mean, I really fell in love with him when he was my teacher, but he wasn't aware of my interest in him until classes were over and we had a little conference where he was going to tell me my final grade and I told him that I liked him and um and his his hands just shook and um he's a writer you know so in the book really I was writing in a composition book a letter to him but I had to be literary to strike him enough to to compel him to love me Hmm. because at that point he seemed like begrudgingly there for me. He was a kind man, you know, and he wanted to visit me and be nice. But I knew at the time he was um, seeing someone else already because he was just really tired of my mental illness. And I really do call it an illness, no matter the um, correct term, you know, because it really feels like one. Um, And he was just kind of done. So he was tired of the chaos. He was tired of the dysfunction. So I thought the only way to compel him to love me is to outright myself so that he knows that I'm going to be canonized in literature forever. (laughs) (laughs) So I did it. And now he loves me. No, he he understood because I could articulate so well what he how he hurt me 
and how much I loved him and that I was troubled. And he found the art in the trouble. And yeah. he he loved me more, you know, after he read those pages, which originally were a letter. <laughs> well, you have this interesting thing you say to Joan also about refusing the inner voices of self-defense and self-justification. Mm-hmm. So you, you say, I wrote explicitly in some ways to display shame. True shame is the ugliest thing. I didn't want readers to do the interior work I did to arrive at a specific point. Mm-hmm. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? How it was important for you not to have the voice that said, well, I did these things because of such and such and such, but yeah. just to show what you did and, and be silent about it? Yeah, I mean, that's... I mean, when you really love somebody, the best thing you can do is be accountable and self-effacing so that they can trust you, you know? Mm. And part of trust is exploring the shame of um, hurting someone, you know, and and exploring the shame of how he hurt me in a truthful way that also um, did not justify him either. You know, I, I did not do the work of trying to logically... Um, compartmentalize all of the things I had done against him and all the things he had done against me. I tried to explore what it means to choose actively to to keep loving, you know. And a lot of this book is um, my heart, which is very faulty. And I wanted to own the faultiness because if I'm not accountable in this world, I'm not, you know, I'm not living. I'm not content with myself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And what about if we're talking about the risks of self-disclosure on a community level? And I think about other either immigrant or non-white writers getting blowback from their communities, whether Juno Diaz with the Dominican community Mm -hmm. or Philip Roth in the Jewish community. Um, When you and I was thinking maybe particularly you 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 give your father a complex story. So mm-hmm. he's more than just somebody who's simply terrible or simply mm-hmm. terrifying, and um, and yet he's also those things. So how, how did that? How did navigating that go? Given that you're not the only one in your community mm-hmm. uh, and who who've, who knew your father, who yeah. was who were potentially scared of of aspects of him, and maybe don't want a complex image of him. I mean. When we're talking about I we're talking about my brothers and sister who really were not interested in redeeming his character or even making it more human because he was such a monster in their eyes and mind and in my own too. But for me, I cannot, um, I can't feel that way about my father. Like you can't, I mean, if you've ever, um, been on the other side of that it's your decision how you want to interact with the with the pain of um not being able to trust the person you're supposed to you know so for me I had to see him as human and as a child I had to imagine what it must have been like for him when he was a baby and I had to want to save that part of him kind of visually I always have that image in my mind um so like I betrayed my brothers really when I wrote him as a person that was not just a monster Mm -hmm. and my brothers eventually understood that 
I was not trying to take away from their pain or the reality of what he did. I was trying to find a way where I could let go. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's interesting about the centering of the relationship between you and Casey narratively we're, we're never clear whether you guys are going to work out so it's like <laughs> neither <we're>, am I <laughs> that's the thing is yeah. like and there's so much posturing when people talk about their romantic life like even on Facebook yeah. you know that like you can't say on Facebook oh we're happy everything's going to be okay because that's like dooming your whole life and also telling everyone that you're dying <laughs> inside or something you know yeah. so like in the book it really does have to be that way it has to be unsettling um, because marriage when you come from dysfunction is a daily challenge and effort to maintain some consistency because I'm so used to leaving you know I'm so used to running away leaving um, being abandoned so for me I have no I have the the commitment to him and it's on paper, but in my mind, you know, I'm, I'm always scared. So that had to just be present in the text, you know? Yeah. yeah. And one of the interesting things about it that we don't know whether you guys are going to make it moment yeah. to moment, and there's a lot of disconnect and misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that is clearly um, him not being able to imagine the, the life you came from as a yeah. white person. And that's an entryway for the white readership, the mm-hmm. non-native readership, potentially to experience that gap of, mm-hmm. of knowledge. And one of the one of the areas that for me I thought was particularly uh, effective was around poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was true also in reading other um, works by native writers in the last couple of years. For instance, in Lely Long Soldiers, whereas which among other things is dealing with the emptiness of Obama's apology to the Native Americans, she has this line the root of reparation is repair. But this line is spoken by a long soldier who literally has a rotten tooth in her mouth that she can't afford to repair. And so showing the emptiness of sort of a rhetorical gesture when there's no actual real change on the ground. Mm -hmm. And then the other was Sherman Alexie's memoir, which when he left the reservation, he went to an all-white high school and he did well there. Mm -hmm. And, And he describes these uh, white classmates is the poorest of the poor for white people. Um, and yet, you know, when there was a funeral, uh, it was everybody's first funeral and it was like his 10th funeral and he was Mm -hmm. in high school and Mm -hmm. he was in a reservation that had an open uranium mine and he was playing in radioactive dust and Mm -hmm. on and on, you could just really sense the gravity of the difference between white poverty and native poverty. Mm. Uh, and I feel like you do that too in this relationship with the ladybug scene with yeah. you and Casey. And I, I was, uh, maybe you could unpack that scene a little bit and maybe some of some thoughts that come to mind for you around the, the impossibility of, of even um, explaining. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is like, I think, There are people who exist in abject poverty who are not native, who understand completely what it's like to live in a house infested by insects and that the only food you have is spoiled and these things. But, you know, for Casey, he grew up in a middle class home with 
an attentive mother and um, his father was a lawyer. So like for him, he had his own set of traumas, you know, and his own set of things. But when he, um, like I, you know, I do, I kill ladybugs when I see them because my house used to be infested with them. And I was a child and we would be home alone, my brother and I, when my mom would go to work and, you know, sometimes she would be doing a three-day shift. So we didn't know when we would see her and it felt like an eternity of being in a house full of insects. And it really made me feel crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, And Casey really never understood until I had to um, tell him that story. You know, and then he saw me differently, and it was this type of empathy that you rarely get from people where they witness and actually kind of even just viscerally connect with the idea of what it must feel like to be in that position or to have lived through that. And I feel like sometimes it's so generous when you allow people the space to not get over something because PTSD brings you back to that moment. And it's so real and vivid that there's no way that I could brush it off. So I kill the ladybug, (laughs) you know. I just have the immediate impulse to, like, either run away or, like, sink into a dark feeling, you know. And I think it's, like, it was really hard to illustrate that. But it's one, one small way I try to explain where I come from. And every day we run into something very small that triggers me and... I have to either, I have to negotiate, do I want to explain why I reacted in this irritable way, or do I want to try to use my coping skills to pretend I'm okay, you know? So, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the episode with Paul Simon? Yeah, sure. And how that relates to this issue of class also? Oh, we were living so poor, like we were so poor, and... um, My mom was on welfare, I think, at the time. And if she wasn't on welfare, she was between jobs. And, like, you know, I remember the the times where Paul Simon started to call the house because he was trying to create work. He was trying to um, create a Broadway play, which is now called The Cape Man. And that's what it's called. And, um... It's about the story of Salvador Argon, who my mother um, was with for a time in, I believe, the 70s. And um, Salvador Argon was convicted um, in his early teens of um, murdering, stabbing another child, I believe. And then he was um, sentenced to life, right? And um, I think he received a death sentence, too, and then it was commuted. Um, so Paul Simon was trying to cultivate uh, songs for that. So he would call the house, and my mother would always answer. And, um, you know, I would talk to him sometimes. But it always felt like, definitely felt like appropriation, where, like, Paul Simon was taking all the best lines from my mother and all of the love letters and then creating music and making um, the woman from Grey's Anatomy played my mother. I forget her name. Um, I don't know her name either. Yeah. <laughs> so she played my mother, and um, 
and there's a CD and like Mark Anthony's on it and like yeah. Benjamin Brad and Julia Roberts went to the uh, the opening night. Didn't she have to make a choice between yeah. receiving money or being able to go it to the play? It was like three thousand or five thousand dollars, or Paul Simon would fly all of us out to see the play. But not so, both. Yeah, but we took the money because, of course, we took the money. I bought running shoes from a sports store for the very first time in my life because before that it had been those like plastic and canvas shoes that you get at a Fields or a Walgreens or something, you know? So, you know, we took the money. Of course we did. And my mother paid bills and then it was gone. It was just gone as soon as it came. And I think, you know, he could have changed my mother's life. He could have invited her to come out. And I I know what it's like to... um, I don't want to put our circumstance on him that it's his fault that we live that way. Of course not. But do I think that he could have made our circumstances better by simply engaging with us in a more meaningful way? Of course I do. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't really take... Even when I take and use Native women's names in my articles... I reach out to their families and I want to send them something like an offering, you know, like it's just respect, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the richest areas of the book is the way you meditate on the differences between you and your mom. Um, You feeling you, you have what you called a blood memory of your neurotic ancestors and their vices and, and thus not understanding your mom's desire to live well. Mm-hmm. Um, and your resistance to your mom's immersion in, in tradition. But perhaps the most interesting way in which you explore, explore you and your mom's relationship is around language, where you talk about how language failed to bring the two of you closer because you had a really different relationship to it. And, and you say to your mother, I won't speak to you the way we spoke before. We tried to be explicit with each other. Some knowledge can only be a song or a symbol. Tell us what you mean and how you got in trouble um, communicating with each other by not knowing that language or knowledge sometimes needed to be a song or a symbol rather than a sentence. Yeah. Well, my mother was a poet. And with poets, I feel like sometimes the way they interact with the world is through the abstract. So if you are telling them, oh, don't forget your doctor's appointment today, um, they're going to forget because they don't hear the practical advice you're giving. But if you say, you know, you should be taking care of what's in here and you point to a heart or you point to their mind and like all of a sudden it resonates and they think, oh, yeah, today I'll take it easy. (laughs) You know, oh, I have an appointment today. Like it's different. And my mother... She was so poetic that it almost felt too blunt to tell her if I was hungry, you know. But if I spent time with her and she, you know, was connected to me in an emotional way, she would intuit that I was hungry. So it was like there was such a sacred way of interacting with my mother that I never understood until she was gone, Mm. you know, because her tenderness and smallness and poetry was lost on me because I was so explicit. I was so about, um, I mean, I had needs. All children do, right? And for me, they were immediate. And for her, um, she was mindless, you know? And she was more um, concerned with abstract, bigger ideas and 
healing a whole community. And so it was really difficult to communicate with her. Yeah. yeah. So, several times in the book, you speak about how in the Salish tradition, language comes before the world, that language creates the world. Can, can you talk a little bit about what that means? For yeah, you? I mean, everything begins with story. Every everything, everything we imagine and have conceived of begins, you know, with the with the speaking of it, you know. And um, I think this world was created by story. If I had to go back to um, kind of the cultivation of my culture, it it is maintained through story. The way that we live our lives and the and what we believe and how we interact with the world um, is held up through the the like ability to convey a story well that will still uphold those values and those ideas mm-hmm. that we're trying to maintain. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you also touched on the book on Salish art and stories and how they tend to be sparse and interested in blank spaces, mm-hmm. and you you wonder about why the art isn't more true to life uh, and ponder how Indian women have themselves become too symbolic and mm-hmm. not real enough. Uh, and you further pursue this in the article we mentioned earlier, I've justified bad native art long enough, um, where you sort of call out the ways um, creating familiar nostalgic art is in some ways dangerous for mm-hmm. indigenous people who are already being treated in, this, in a certain static way. And you say, you say the following... It is a type of cultural reproduction we engage in, and I think of Walter Benjamin when I say this, that the desire for ubiquity in our work, its ability to be shared, liked, and seen, has become more valuable to our artists and great minds than the art itself. And what's happened is that every poignant thing we do is only as valuable as its ability to become a conference or a catchphrase, and it's lowered the quality of our work. It's made us so digestible we've digested ourselves and we keep regurgitating the same things, images, and ideas. To what end? And I'm hoping you could just maybe speak more on this about the type of art you're talking about for people who might not be familiar with it and um, and maybe some of the difficult considerations of writing that piece, uh, mm-hmm. which I imagine... Um, is threatening to some of of, of, of yeah, the artists. It stirred a lot of pots, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, I'm really tired of the familiar. I'm not interested in it. I'm interested in um, in kind of the uniqueness of our work, and I feel like sometimes we have the compulsion to please the outside and do the thing that's expected of us, like playing Indian, you know, or doing a, um, a collage of work that is all of the relics of our past and all of the signifiers that are familiar to white people about Indians. Or we're like saying the thing they want to hear, which is, um, you know, like we are spiritual, we are mystical, we are stoic, we are um, deeply burdened um, by poverty, we are drunks, you know, all of these things, um, like, it feels like somebody is anticipating and wanting that. There's always a market for that. And I feel like we need to step away from the market of it, unless the intention is to make money, and I honor that. I think that's perfectly fine. But I think when we examine art, we should allow, allow ourselves to be critical 
and and, and truly examine um, what its function and what it's doing. Like a good example is um, the red dresses that was an art installation, and the the red dress signifies uh, murdered and missing women, and it's hung outside of courthouses and things like that to. Um, remind people, right, that not only that we exist, but there is a problem, and it is red and glaring. Um, But I think it's, personally, if I was to objectively, if I was to look at it, um, I would say it, it dehumanizes me further, that there's no, that our faces aren't enough, that the missing poster is not enough, that our bodies are not enough, you know? If we were to look, flip this and look at um, this issue, but maybe within a writing workshop, mm-hmm. have you? So you're not writing what, what stereotypical native narrative. Yeah, um, it's not the identity crisis people want of right. like walking between two worlds and oh, I have this traditional knowledge and I have modern knowledge and I have to make a choice or this is so confusing. Like, I don't have that crisis, you yeah. know? Yeah. And have you noticed getting uh, sort of a racialized critique when you were writing your work in the, in the context of a, mm-hmm. a writing workshop where your teacher wasn't Native? Yeah, I was always asked to describe more Native stuff. So, like, if I even mention that a healer, you know, came to my home, they would say, tell us more about the healer. Like, they want the tourist experience of indigenous culture, mm. which writing is an art. It is not a tour guide. It is not representative of a culture. It is a singular work work with craft, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can, can you speak a little bit about your experience at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Mm-hmm. And I know you also studied with Sherman Alexie, among others, mm-hmm. who wrote this really great foreword for this mm-hmm. book. Um, any 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 uh, writing advice that has stuck with you from him or other, uh, other teachers that you had there? Uh, my mentorship with Sherman was so deeply... It was so wonderful, you know, because he's really guided me, right? It's almost like hand in hand. He was just so good to me. Um, and in this way, he he taught me that if I didn't write the book, it wasn't going to be there for anyone and that it was necessary. And somebody believing in your voice that much rarely happens. But at IAIA, um, the mentors know the importance of our work. Like they know because they see the lack and they're concerned about the lack and they're so encouraging. And I mean, I'm a mentor there now and it is, it is really, it's like personal. We chat on the phone and I, you know, I send care packages when I can. And it feels like you're lifting up this person who for so long was not, um, given the platform they needed and desired at the institutions they were at before, you know? Mm-hmm. So it feels like, it does feel like a discovery of like, it, it feels like an era of discovery. It feels transcendent to give these writers a sovereign land to write, you know? Yeah. yeah. Which is, there's such a lack. There's such a lack of books, Um and, of course, there are so many Native authors that I could just name and list 
but there's such it, there could be so many more there are so many more people that should be out here you know yeah, yeah. And, and at the end of the book you mention Adrian Rich uh, as an influence you mm-hmm. say saying this book is sometimes for her everything she's done for me mm-hmm. um, how what has she done for you what has Adrian Rich done for you as a as a writer that that you you want to call her out at the end I think she's been able to, in her work, it is such a revelation for me because she is like, um, she, she really does occupy the space for herself and for women. And she's talking about like a continuum, right? She talks about continuum and she talks about um, historical erasure too. You know, she talks about all of the things that kind of like, I examine in my work, but through the lens of um, myself, which is, you know, very connected to my culture. Um, So in a lot of ways, she's inspired me. And her poetry itself, um, it's so, it couples so well with, because I loved Emily Dickinson and then I loved her, you know, and it felt like such a good transition. And I feel like being able to surround myself with, women writers um, has nurtured me in a way I didn't experience as a child, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, given that Heartberries is ex- sort of exploding onto the scene right now, which is pretty <laughs> yeah. exciting, um, are you working on anything else? And if you are um, working on something else, can you can you maybe tip your hand and, and tell us a little bit about what it is? I have an essay coming out in Guernica, um, about it's nonfiction, um, and it's about a lot of different things. Um, it's a it's a little risky because I'm talking about um, for the first time I'm coming out and saying because I was really alluding to the fact that I had done sex work or that I had subjugated myself for money from men. So for the first time, I'm explicitly talking about what that looks like, because now that I have authority and I'm a published author, I am safer to talk and exploring what it looks like when women are able, well, and men too, are able to talk about sex work, because that in literature, I feel is lacking. And it's not like I'm trying to feel the need. It's that I'm excited to write about it. And um, and I also have a short story in West Branch. Roxanne Gay solicited me. It was a dream. She is a dream. <laughs> and um, so that's in there. And it's um, a tender thing. It's a short story and it's a horror story. So I hope people know that it's not it's not um, nonfiction. Yeah. <laughs> I hope they know I'm not because it's about killing, um, trying to kill a man. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's fiction. Um, and I'm also just writing little, a little, little bits in my journal and holding workshops and, you know, just trying to stay inspired. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on Between the Covers Thank today, you. Therese. This is awesome. Yeah. We're talking today to Therese Marie Myatt, the author of Heartberries from Counterpoint Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, 
listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Therese Marie Myatt's work can be found at Guernica and at West Branch, as well as on the Patreon page with her reading of Native Women Brilliance at patreon.com slash between the covers. And finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sa Petite Ami, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>